This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore a contextual gospel for a world in conflict. We talk with Bishop Emeritus Kamara Alangasinghe of the Anglican Church of Sri Lanka about faith in the midst of civil war and his work for reconciliation, both here in America and abroad. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bishop Kumara Ilanga Singha. The Right Reverend Kumara Ilanga Singha is an emeritus bishop of the Anglican Church in the Diocese of Kurunagala, Sri Lanka. He served in that role between 2000 and 2010. Prior to that, he was principal of the Theological College of Lanka between 1992 and 1999. In 2015, he was appointed Sri Lanka's ambassador to the Parliament of the World's Religions. Today, he works with Omnia's Institute for Contextual Leadership as their Interfaith Peacemaker Initiative Head in Sri Lanka. Bishop Kumara Ilanga Singha, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So I'm interested, first of all, to hear about your journey, how you came to be doing this type of interfaith peacemaking work. Peacemaking has always been a part of my journey uh, because of the context from which I come. Uh, Sri Lanka has experienced long years, long periods of conflict and violence and types of problems uh, in the past. And uh, we have just emerged out of a long-drawn war which lasted about 30 years. And uh, now we are into peacemaking. And even before that, during the time of the war, we were engaged in uh, the community uh, trying to help people how to face the difficulties and the problems, the challenges that they were facing at that time. So my journey uh, has been together with the community because when uh, I was uh, bishop of the Diocese of Kurunagala, I remember encouraging our clergy in the different uh, areas of the country, and especially within the Diocese of Kurunagala, encouraging them to build teams uh, in their own local areas because we found that uh, it is only working together that will help in building the community and also protecting the community. Uh, I encouraged uh, the uh, clergy and the laity, the lay leaders of the local areas, to work together with the people of all faiths there were the, uh, apart from the Christians, there were the, uh, the Maulavis, the Muslim people, there were the uh, majority Buddhist monks, 
and the Kurukkals from the Hindu community. So I encouraged them to form little peace committees in those local areas because then at any emergency, because those days during the war, we were not too sure when we go out of the home in the morning when until we come back, whether we will come back because there were bombs going all over. There were so many other problems uh, we, that we were facing. And because of that, we encouraged them so because the community had to be strengthened, the community had to be energized, community uh, had to be empowered in a way so that they will be able to look after themselves. Uh, there's no way of protecting, uh, protection that can come from outside. Uh, I, I remember at one state, the president of the country was telling uh, you need to look after yourselves. There can be bombs or so many other things, but you have to look after yourselves because there's nothing that the armed forces or the others can do when something happens. So uh, we took that quite seriously and we uh, empowered our people. We gave them reassurance that we were there with them and uh, we encouraged them to uh, build those peace committees. So that experience was there for me. I have always been in the field of teaching, field of teaching. Education has always been, my, my whole family has been like that, actually. Uh, my father was a, a head teacher and my mother was a teacher in the school. And, you know, the rest of my family, uh, we were all teachers in a sense. Even though I was not directly teaching for some time, but then I became the principal of the Theological College of Lanka, and then I was into teaching. So, obviously, it was a case of uh, not just giving them knowledge, but it was a case of empowering them, giving them the strength to look after themselves and all that. So this journey was very helpful for me. And ultimately, uh, in my retirement, when I was continuing uh, this journey, I found that uh, the work that Omnia was doing was helpful for me because they were uh, more uh, strategically more inclined and then they, they were doing it so well. Uh, and and the method was also very easy for other people to pick up. So, well, let's let's take a step back first of all. And for my listeners who may not be familiar with Sri Lanka, tell us about the the sort of the the, the, the demographic makeup of the country. So when we talk about Sri Lankans, we're talking about a, a country that has multiple faiths. Right. And and so tell us a little bit about the composition of Sri Lanka as a as a country. Um, Yes, Sri Lanka, as you know, is an island at the tip, at the bottom tip of uh, India. Uh, it used to be called the Pearl of the Indian Ocean, and later it became the Teardrop of the Indian Ocean. So, uh, our country is uh, is uh, we have about four major living religions being practiced within the country. Uh, majority of them are the Buddhists. Uh, then we have the uh, Hindus, about 18%. Uh, Buddhists were about uh, 65%. And uh, then we had the Christians and the Muslims uh, almost in equal numbers. Uh, on the other hand, ethnically, we had Sinhala people who are about 70%. 
And then the Tamil people, about 18%. And uh, we also have the uh, others, uh, you know, the Moors and other people. Now, what is important is for us to understand how this is linked up to each other. Like, Buddhists were predominantly Sinhala people. And Hindus were predominantly Tamil people. Muslim people were always Islamic. And it was only within the Christian community that we had both uh, Sinhala and Tamil people together living, almost in equal numbers. The percentages otherwise in the country were different, but within the Christian community, the percentages between Sinhala and Tamil people, uh, they were almost 50-50. So these ethnic differences, which were almost down the line with other faiths, they were, they were a mixture within the Christian faith. That's right. They were a mixture within the Christian faith. Because, so because of that, we were accountable to both uh, ethnic groups, the Sinhala and the Tamil people. So we, uh, it was easy for us, in a sense, to convince people what they should be doing, uh, to help them to help each other. And uh, uh, it was quite good for, for a long, long time. But later we also found that even within the church that there were written differences. Uh, so we had to work on those uh, areas. And... Uh, uh, we must also mention that uh, uh, the, the Buddhist people uh, have a special place in the country because that is uh, regarded as the, the state religion and uh, it uh, has uh, special privileges enjoyed by them. And at the same time, we find that they... Uh, others, others, of course, through the Constitution, they have the uh, equal opportunities. Others also for freedom of religion and all that. But that does not mean that everything is fine because the Buddhists certainly had uh, something more than what the other religious people had. And so there's, there's privilege that goes with being a Buddhist in Sri Lanka. That's right, certainly. And, and so what is it like to be... Uh, to be a Christian in a country that is not majority Christian. I imagine many of my listeners have never had that sort of experience. Right. This, um, it's, a, it's, it's a minority feeling that you will always have. Uh, it's a fear that we'll, you will always have. It is a fear or a, or a lack of privilege with which you have to continue to live in the country. And we have all got used to that. We don't go for more things, in a sense. Uh, we have to look after ourselves, and we have to do these things in the way that it is uh, what is available for us. So uh, it is difficult at times because, uh, you know, sometimes people override us and uh, people go on challenging us all the time and sometimes uh, remove our privileges and all that. Uh, so... But we have to live with that. We have to live with that. And then uh, we were okay. Uh, we, we have got used to living with that in a sense. Yeah. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Right Reverend Kumara Elangasinghe, who is the Emeritus Bishop of the Anglican Church in the Diocese of Karunagala, Sri Lanka. We'll be back in a moment. 
Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road Podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front lines, on the ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bishop Kumara Ilangasinghe. He's Emeritus Bishop of the Anglican Church in the Diocese of Karunagala, Sri Lanka. He also works here in Chicago with the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership. Well, a moment ago you mentioned that Sri Lanka had a civil war for multiple decades. What was the nature of that conflict? Uh, I imagine that many of my listeners may have never heard of Sri Lanka, let alone uh, heard about the civil war. So help us understand what was going on there. Yes, this was... Uh, people would like to say that this was a war between the Sinhala people and the Tamil people. I would disagree on that because this was a war that was fought between the uh, aggressive militant uh, group of the Tamil people on one side, uh, who were called the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, and uh, with the government forces. Entirely because um, the Tamil people in the country have been going through a very difficult time over the years since our independence. Uh, they were facing uh, language problems, they were facing uh, many other problems uh, in education, uh, in the regions where they lived and all that. Uh, so because of that, uh, they were also challenged with the occasional, no, I won't say occasional, I mean even uh, regular riots because the Tamil people were being uh, harassed all the time and they were looted, they, they lost their lives sometimes, and the riots went on every uh, four or five years uh, in, in between, you know. So this was bad. This was really bad. And when this was going on, we all knew that this is the future is going to be rather dangerous. Uh, and then what happened was, in 1983, uh, a violent group, young people, also probably ethnically divided, they took to arms. They thought that the only language these people will understanding, understand will be the language of the arms. And they started fighting. So they really, when they started fighting, they organized themselves so well, organized themselves all over the world, and they had enough and more funding and all that for their battle. And it went on for 30 years. It is entirely because of the uh, 
problems that the Tamil people were facing within the country. Uh, and uh, governments, especially the politicians, were really making politicians on both sides, they were really making use of the ethnic communities for their own ends, not for the benefit of their of each other, but for their own ends. In order to reach to where they wanted to go, they used the people. So they were ginning up divisions, they were making these kinds of uh, conflicts more acute, it sounds like, That's in right. order to shore up political power. Certainly, because uh, that is what the politicians wanted. And as we all see all over the world, politicians play this game. And then ultimately, the ordinary people are the victims of all this violence. Now, you're an Anglican bishop. You're a retired Anglican bishop. Uh, for my listeners who may be unfamiliar, they may have heard of Episcopalianism, but they may not know how this relates to Anglicanism. Just quickly help us to understand, what does it mean to say that you're part of the Anglican communion? Uh, this is, uh, the Episcopalians are Anglicans. They are from, I mean, the original Anglican meaning is the Church of England. And the Church of England uh, came to us uh, with the uh, British Empire. And uh, this is how we received the Anglican uh, version of our religion, of Christianity. Uh, it's quite interesting to understand this whole thing. Uh, Christianity was something that was born, like many other religions, in Asia, in the Middle Eastern uh, Asia. And then ultimately, it it was taken to the... Uh, taken to Europe and the West. And then it wore the European and the Western garb. And when they came back to us, they came with that Western garb. And that is what we now called that the teaching was a kind of a received theology. We were living with this received theology for such a long time. And uh, we found that that was not going to help us very much. Hence, we had to uh, ensure that our theology emerged from our own soil, emerged from our own soil, and that's why we say it's the contextual theology now. So the Diocese of Kurunangala, where I was bishop, has been a pioneering diocese which has tried to indigenize the religion, indigenize the religion of Christianity, because we were, we were changing right from the beginning we were changing our, our worship patterns, the liturgy, the lyrics, you know, in place of the hymns. Uh, we were going on for some time with the translations of the English hymns, but then we created our own uh, hymns, and then our vestments were changed in various ways, and then our architecture was changed. Architecture of our buildings was changed like that. We wanted to make Christianity a religion of the soil so that, you know, because we believe that uh, Jesus Christ was incarnated in the midst of God's people and in the midst of God's people's history. And so we want to understand uh, Jesus Christ incarnating among ourselves in the history of Sri Lanka. And that was important for us. So we were trying to indigenize this whole thing. But still we remain 
Anglicans. We have the link with the Anglican communion all round. In fact, I have had the privilege of serving on the standing committee of the Anglican Consultative Council, and I still function on the Inter-Anglican Standing Commission on Unity, Faith, and Order, which is the main doctrinal commission of the Anglican Communion. Actually, uh, from Chicago, I will be going to UK for our annual meetings. Uh, so if I'm hearing you correctly, Christianity began as a Middle Eastern Asian religion. It then went to Europe and became... It, you mentioned European vestments, European clothing. And then with colonialism, it comes back to Asia. It comes back to the Middle East. It comes back to other parts of the world. And, but it comes back in that Western garb. Mm-hmm. And so part of what the action has been for churches like your church in Kurunagala, your diocese in Kurunagala, has been to recover... Uh, a Christianity that speaks to, you mentioned something like the, the theology of the ground or to yes, theology on the contextual ground. Theology. Contextual theology. Yeah, yeah, so help, yeah. my, help my listeners understand, when you use this phrase contextual theology, what does that mean to you? It is, it is the theology that emerges from bottom up. Mm-hmm. It is not the received theology that comes from top bottom. Mm-hmm. You know, it is the theology of the people. It is the theology of our lives Uh, in the community and in Sri Lanka because uh, to me I have I have always understood myself as a as a Sri Lankan Christian uh, as a person who is influenced very much by the Judeo-Christian background as well as the Sinhala culture in the country which is very much nourished by the Buddhist culture. If you happen to be a Sinhala Christian in Sri Lanka, then you are a person who has been influenced by the Judeo-Christian culture as much as the cultural setting uh, in Sri Lanka, the Sinhala culture, which is uh, nurtured very much in the Buddhist tradition. Now, some of my listeners are evangelicals, and they are American evangelicals, and they may hear that, and they may say, oh, so you've watered down and you've mixed up true Christianity with something else. That's not what you're saying, though. So help me understand and help my listeners understand how that's not what you're saying. No, that's certainly not what we are saying. We will certainly retain uh, our firm Christian uh, faith, and it is important for us to understand that Christ was incarnated. Christ was incarnated in the midst of uh, the history of God's people. As much as it happened in Israel, it is happening in other parts of the world now. So we are not watering down Christianity, certainly not, uh, because we were very much challenged by the Christian faith. We are very much challenged by the offering that Jesus made on the cross. We are very much challenged by the sacrificial life of uh, Jesus. And we certainly would not uh, compromise that. And uh, But what is important is that we have to understand our place and we have to understand our witness in the context that we are living in. We are living in the midst of so many other faith traditions, and we we believe that God is uh, the God's revelation is not frozen. God's revelation is not frozen. God's revelation is is even happening today. 
is even happening today. And we don't know from where it is coming, in a sense. We can't freeze it to one tradition only. It, it, it is being revealed all over. So we have to accept that position. Otherwise, we will be rejecting the Holy Spirit. We have to be open to the Holy Spirit because the revelation of God is all the time there. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bishop Kumara Elanga Singha, the Emeritus Bishop of the Anglican Church in the Diocese of Karunagala, Sri Lanka. He served there between 2000 and 2010. He was previously the principal of the Theological College of Lanka between 1992 and 1999. We're talking about his work as an organizer and a peacemaker, and in particular in the context of the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bishop Kumara Ilangasingha. He is the Emeritus Bishop of the Anglican Church in the Diocese of Karunagala, Sri Lanka, where he served from 2000 to 2010. He was previously the principal of the Theological College of Lanka between 1992 and 1999. Today, he works with the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership, where he heads their Interfaith Peacemaker Initiative in Sri Lanka, and he provides leadership to the Sarvadharmada Kendra Center for All Religions, an interreligious organization based in Kandy, Sri Lanka. So I want to talk to you a little bit about Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership. It's an organization based here in Chicago, but you are in Sri Lanka. So help me understand the international work, first of all, that Omnia is doing and how your role fits into that. I think the uh, work of Omnia started uh, here in uh, outside Sri Lanka in many ways and outside many other countries. And... Uh, uh, it has appealed to places where there have been conflict uh, and and war and uh, aggressiveness and violence. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, the northeastern Nigeria in the Gombe state, they started this work and then uh, they have uh, now moved in that direction and they have created about 50-odd uh, Mm, uh, peacemaker teams uh, in that uh, in that state, uh, and then they have also now moved to Sri Lanka because the president of the uh, Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership, Shanta Premavadana, is really originally from Sri Lanka. So uh, we discussed this uh, at one of our meetings uh, in Sri Lanka, and then I shared with them the kind of work that we were doing in the Sarvadharmata Kendra in, in Kandy, uh, which is uh, 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 the real understanding is that it's a center for all religious traditions. And uh, he was very interested and I was very interested in this whole thing. And then we started these training programs for people of all faiths uh, on this uh, whole issue of leadership. We have done leadership training for years and years. In my journey, 
I have been doing it at different places. I've been doing it at in schools. I've been doing it in churches. I've been doing it in the community and various other places. But this probably is completely different from what we have been doing in the past. The, those days, it was a case of teaching leadership to the people or to the community, to, the, to the children. Teaching skills or te- Te- uh, teaching those kinds of, like, here's how you be a leader. That's right. Okay. You, you know, the leadership qualities, to, be, to equip them with those leadership qualities. But h- here, it is different. Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership is something that starts from the bottom. You base on issues in the community. You base on the common problems that the people will face in the community. And there you start uh, sharing with them because earlier the expertise came from somewhere else. But here we imagine that the expertise is already there in the community. And they harness the expertise of the community together and then allow it to surface upwards. You know, it's coming from bottom up. And then what happens is that the people are mobilized uh, in some way. We, we are not worried about uh, their religion or their race or their anything. We just bring the people together. We encourage them to come together and to deal with some of the issues in the community. And when they do that, what happens is that automatically they will form themselves into a community because they are all aiming at one target. They are all aiming at one target, and they will form into a community. And when they form into a community, they forget where they come from. They completely forget where they belong. Whether you are a Christian or a Muslim or anyone, where you, be- where you belong is-, is immaterial, because it's the main issue in the community that is... That is uh, uh, that is important. So we we think of the urgent things. We think of the things that are useful for the community. We think we also identify the problems that are winnable, our problems that uh, that we are possibly be able to win uh, by by a community struggle. So when we do that kind of thing, the community will come together invariably without any uh, problem as such. They begin to trust each other. They begin to learn from each other. They become independent. They become interdependent of each other. And it's very important uh, that, you know, we are always formed in our communities and in our educational systems, we are always called to be independent. Independent, all the time to be yourself. Individualism is the most important factor that is really emphasized in our educational systems. But here, we are encouraging people to be interdependent. You depend on the other person. You learn from the other person. You respect the other person. You, you need the other person for your better life. So we try and you know, give them that kind of experience and bring them together. So having done that, we, you know, we, we start with uh, one-on-ones. Like, we don't start with the whole community together at one stage. We start on one-on-ones, you know, person to person. And then you have a self-interest in yourself. And then uh, we, you need to talk to the 
person who is there and the person that you're talking to. And then we must try and uh, discover that person's self-interest so that we try and bring both self-interest together so that we will be both in one self-interest. And so if I'm hearing this correctly, if you start with a common issue that maybe these two divided communities have and you appeal to the self-interest of both, their self-interest in both cases will be solving that issue. And if you've identified the right issue, then they begin to forget about the differences of the communities Mm -hmm. and instead they begin to work on the common problem. And if I'm hearing correctly, in the working on the common problem, they begin to build relationships. That's right. And those relationships one-on-one begin to actually form a different type of community. That's, Have I heard that correctly? That's a, that's a different kind of uh, type of community. And also, without even your knowledge, unconsciously, you form yourself into a team. You form yourself into a team. And those are the interfaith peacemaker teams. And, and, and oftentimes, what... What I'm hearing you saying is that in those, there are already natural leaders, but maybe they don't believe themselves to be leaders. And so part of what your task is, is to help to liberate them to leadership. But they're already there. You don't train them. You just help them to see the gifts that they already have. That's right. Yes. It's not leadership training that way. It is really helping them to uh, understand where they are and to discover the leadership within them so that they will be able to uh, come together as leaders in the community. That must be amazing to be present for when you see that actually happen. Oh, yes. It is indeed a joy. It is indeed a joy to see that happening. And the people who have been really in the margins coming to the center and taking leadership and then leading the whole community, it's a a tremendous experience. Can you give my listeners an example of a time that you've seen that happen that was particularly profound for you? Yeah, I I, I remember the time that uh, there were there was a, a, a bit of a riot uh, in the Candy uh, area. Uh, immediately after our first training program, about two weeks after that, they started this violence in uh, in a in a suburb of Candy. And Candy, where is that in Sri Lanka? Candy is, north, is south? in the center. Center, Candy okay. is in the center of Candy. Candy is the is the sacred city of Sri Lanka, uh, where the temple of the tooth is situated for the Buddhists, and it is a sacred city. And Buddhism is a nonviolent religion. With all those things. There were politicians who were involved and all that, and they created these problems uh, in those areas. And when that happened, actually, by that time, we had already equipped some of our uh, of our people in the community. And the stories that I heard after all that, because immediately when that was happening, we were really on the scene. You know, some of us were really on the scene and uh, catering to the immediate needs of the people and all that. The houses were burnt and people died and all that. So the stories that came after that were very, very encouraging because they said what we learned in our training program was extremely helpful in dealing with the issues that that we were facing at this time because we knew exactly where to tackle the whole problem and we are how to do that and how we should come together as one family to handle this situation. So that was very, very uh, encouraging and it's a very good example for that. And so this is the model that Omnia is trying to teach around the world now. 
Very much so. Because uh, in, uh, in northeastern Nigeria is the area where Boko Haram is very much active. And there are killings and there are all kinds of problems that are going on in that area. And here they are equipping people to strengthen themselves so that they will not allow the Boko Haram uh, groups to come and disturb the community. You know, they are, they are being empowered to do that. Uh, by this kind of situation. And they have about 52, uh, 52 uh, uh, peacemaker teams in, those, uh, uh, in that particular state. And has it been a success? Has it, has it made a difference? Very much a success. Very much a success. We have a person there, uh, Abare Kalla, who is, uh, who is really leading that group in that whole thing. He's available all the time for them. And, uh, you know, it is mentoring them uh, in their whole situation. You know, training is important, but the follow-up is more important than the training. And the follow-up means that you need to mentor your leaders right through the period so that you keep in touch with them, guide them, and strengthen them as they go on. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bishop Kumara Ilangasingha. He is the Emeritus Bishop of the Anglican Church in the Diocese of Kurunagala, Sri Lanka. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Bishop Kamara Elangasingha. He is the Emeritus Bishop of the Anglican Church in the Diocese of Karunagala, Sri Lanka, where he served from 2000 to 2010. He also serves here in Chicago as part of the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership, and he works on the ground in Sri Lanka doing peacemaking and reconciliation work. So, Tell me, were you born into the Anglican faith or did you come to the Anglican faith at some point in your life? I knew that you will ask that question at some stage. I was a born Christian, but I'm only a second-generation Christian. My father and mother were converts from Buddhism, and half my relations are still Buddhists. So I'm in a very privileged position because with much ease, I just go across to the community all over. <laughs> because you've already got family connections and you've, already, you, you've, got, you've got people that will vouch for you on both sides of that divide. I have uh, so many people. I have so many leading Buddhist monks who are connected to me, who are my relations. And I have so many other people. And also my father was a teacher and worked in the community. And then he was a kind of a social worker also, in addition to being a, a person in education. Uh, he built wonderful relationships with the people in the community. So that was also helpful for me. And your own call to vocation when you decided that you were needing to become a pastor, what, what was that experience like? It was, uh, it was quite interesting the way that I think. Right from the beginning, I had some idea of uh, moving towards ministry. Uh, my mother was the prime mover in this whole thing. My mother was very keen to uh, ensure that I was offered. It is, I, I have heard the story from her that she has 
been praying for a son, and she has been in conversation with God, and she has said, if you give me a son, I will give that son back to you. And that was her promise. And because she was bound that way, right from my very young days, she encouraged me to do this. And there's a very interesting story uh, uh, subsequent to that, because my bishop at that time was Bishop Lakshman Vikramasinghe, who was my real guru. And uh, he was keen that I, uh, I come to the church without entering the university. That is for one reason that he, he wanted to encourage me to do my theological studies and to go for postgraduate studies in theology directly rather than going for secular studies and then coming back uh, and all that. Uh, but my mother was not in favor of that. My mother said, no way. Uh, and uh, the bishop tried hard to convince my mother on this whole thing. And she was having a battle with, with him, in a sense, because, I mean, a very favorable battle. Uh, then finally, when she found that it was very difficult to deal with the bishop, he turned to him and, he told, uh, and she told him, Bishop, when I offer to God, I offer the best. Please allow Kumara to go to the university and come back. You don't worry about his coming back. He will come back to you. And then you can do anything what you want to do with him after that. And she was very keen that I become a non-stipendary minister without depending on the church for my living to do that. But then my bishop said, nothing doing, I want you fully. So obviously I had to give in to that kind of situation. So it has been a very interesting way of uh, joining. And I don't think I have, I have turned back. I have had enormous amounts of uh, patience. I have had uh, very, very difficult times. I have had very challenging times where I was, I was virtually rethinking whether I have taken the right decision and all that. But then always on my knees, I have been able to resort, resolve the problems and then I'm still back here. And now in my retirement, I'm extremely happy that I'm engaged in this kind of work. Yeah. And Bishop Ilanga Singha, as you've been doing this work, and I, I usually ask this question of my guests as we near the end of the conversation, I ask them what frustrates them and then what keeps them hopeful. So as you've been doing this work for multiple decades, what is it that still frustrates you? It frustrates me uh, in many ways, actually. Uh, I find that, uh, especially in Sri Lanka, that our community is being misled and misguided by our leaders. It's sad today. If you really take the situation today in Sri Lanka, we are, we are having two prime ministers fighting for each other. We are having a constitutional crisis in the country. And the, the president has taken everything uh, into his hand and then dissolved the parliament. So these are the things that will frustrate me because our political leaders have been very, very, I would say, very bad because they have not been conscious of the uh, beneficial things for the people of the country, but they were more concerned about themselves, how to gain then things themselves for themselves and then to move on. So that frustrates me very, very badly. But I must tell you that the people are the most encouraging strength for me. 
for the people. And so if we pivot and ask, and I ask you now what, what it is that gives you hope, what is it that gives you hope? The hope is that the people respond to you so well. And the people are fed up with politicians. The people are fed up with what has been happening in our history. The people are fed up with war. People are fed up with all kinds of other problems that we have been facing. We have financial crisis, we have political crisis, we have cultural crisis in many ways. And people are fed up with all these things. They want to move on. They want to move on. And because of that, I'm very much encouraged because I know there is hope because the people want to be in a different position later. Well, Bishop Kamara Alangasinghe, I appreciate so much your taking time to talk about your your personal history, but also the history of Sri Lanka and the work that you have been doing to help to mend the divides and to help to bring peace and reconciliation to that to that land of struggle. But also your wisdom, I think, is very useful for us here in the American context as well. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Emeritus Bishop Kumara Elangasinghe. He was the bishop in the Anglican Church in the Diocese of Karunagala, Sri Lanka, between the years 2000 and 2010. He was previously the principal of the Theological College of Lanka between 1992 and 1999. In 2015, he was appointed Sri Lanka's ambassador to the Parliament of the World's Religions. Today, he works with the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership on their Interfaith Peacemaker Initiative in Sri Lanka. He provides leadership at Sarva Dharmata Kendra, the Center for All Religions, an interreligious organization based in Kandy, Sri Lanka. Thank you again for your time. This was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijin. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.